Hello and welcome to Building Local Power. I'm Stacey Mitchell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today on the show, we have Kimber Lanning. Kimber is founder of Local First Arizona and Local First Arizona Foundation, two distinct statewide organizations working in tandem to strengthen Arizona's economy. Under Kimber's leadership, Local First Arizona has grown to a membership of more than 3,000 independent businesses across the state. Kimber herself is an entrepreneur, and she's also a community development specialist who works to cultivate strong, self-reliant communities and inspire a higher quality of life for people across Arizona. Kimber, welcome to Building Local Power. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start by asking you, what led you to found Local First Arizona? Tell us a little bit about the conditions in the state, what it is that you're trying to change. Sure. So it's a really interesting place in that, um, you know, we were the last of the continental states to actually become a state. It wasn't until 1912 that we had statehood. And we grew very rapidly after the 1950s. Um, so Phoenix is very much built after the you know, advent of the automobile. And uh, we grew in such a way that there wasn't a lot of sense of place because, you know, two thirds of the people living here came from somewhere else. And so therefore, there's not a lot of loyalty to, you know, old school companies that you might see in a place like Philadelphia or Boston, you know, to to have a company here in Arizona that's been here more than 30 years is rare, more than 50 years, I could probably count on just a handful of, you know, fingers. So I think it's, um, it's important to understand that as we grew, the change model, the model of change store was actually also hitting its stride. They didn't have to fight any brand loyalty that was already here. They could just come on, you know, set up shop and, and uh, people would support them, particularly if they were coming from another area that we had a lot of transplants from. So you could take a company like Culver's. Uh, that was popular in Chicago, they'd set up shop here and there's a bazillion people from Illinois that would immediately flood their stores uh, because the people that are living here that live in Illinois, that came from Illinois are not, they don't put their roots here. They want to bring Illinois with them. And that shows in everything from their, their uh, habits in terms of commerce to the landscaping choices that they have. They brought their grass and their pine trees with them or, or oak trees or other such things that are not native to the desert here. So I think that the first thing to contextualize uh, in Arizona is that it's taken us a minute to figure out who we are because everybody moved here and tried to convince us who, who we were. And there weren't enough local Arizonans to say, no, that's that's not who we are. This is who we are. So when we started Local First Arizona, it really resonated with people. They went, yeah, wait a minute. You're right. There are local businesses here and they don't have a voice and they're being overrun by chain stores. Uh, let's link arms and and do this. So I think it, it catches people off guard how large we've grown. But really, I think it was a matter of resonating with enough people that we really needed it. You know, you don't need to go to New York City per se and say support local businesses because people are already doing that by and large. Now, they're just facing an influx of chains now, but we already went through all of that. And uh, and now the, the local restaurant scene is thriving um, over the chain rest. We're seeing chain restaurants close left and right. So as you 
formed this organization and as you've been doing this work across the state, what are some of the biggest challenges that you're seeing for independent businesses, for this idea of having a strong local economy in Arizona? I think the biggest challenge we see is access to capital. So, and there are a number of reasons for that. I think that the largest reason is that we as a state, um, our, our residents, our businesses, and our governments have put our money in the three biggest banks that exist in the country. So that's Chase, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo. And those three banks are largely not lending uh, to small businesses in Arizona. They are not interested in doing $25,000 loans. Uh, they, they'll only consider doing about $250,000 and up. And even the $250,000 loans are pretty rare. So that pretty much cuts off the, the lifeblood of the small, small business here. And when we get into underserved markets, they're relying on predatory lenders for those loans and paying exorbitant um, interest rates. So I think that's really the biggest uh, issue that we have. And I, I suspect that's certainly true around the country. We're also seeing banks cut off uh, capital in rural areas at, at alarmingly high rates. And, um, it, you know, when, it, when the last bank pulls out of a small town, it's hard for that small town to survive. So this is an issue we've been drawing attention to. And I think that it's one of those sleeping giant issues that everybody should be moving their money in, into local credit unions or community controlled banks that um, it's just sort of like keeping an eye on your money. You need to know where it is and where it's invested. If you have it in one of those three big banks, then, then frankly, you have no idea where it's invested. And somebody's making money off of you that could be in a very non-values aligned manner. Yeah, I mean, I, it's the the data on what's happened to the banking system as it's you know as things have consolidated and we've lost local banks and credit unions. Uh, it's had a real impact on the ability of businesses to get loans to grow. Um, there's just such a direct connection there, and it's it's I guess disturbing uh, that uh, political leadership has not been more aggressive about addressing that, um, because it really is like a functional issue. And or it's a, it's a structural issue in the sense that big banks, they're not going to start lending to local businesses. They're, they're operating at a scale that's just out of touch with local needs. So tell me a little bit about like, as you've, um, you know, been delivering this message about local banking, have you gotten a response from that? Have you seen anything shift in that work? Yeah, we've been very pleased. Um, here in Arizona, we've been able to shift 6% market share out of those big three banks and into our community banks. So we've been running an active Move Your Money campaign now for a couple of years. And um, it's been significant. The, the number of businesses that have moved their money, we've successfully convinced the city of Phoenix to move $50 million, uh, which is just a piece of their money, but it's a start. And I, I was able to convince them of that because they're, you know, the elected officials were talking about having a, a 24 seven vibrant, you know, city. And I said, no, no, you're not. Um, you're not because the small businesses here cannot access capital. And if, if that's your goal, then you need to move your money into a bank that shares that vision. And that's not one of the big banks because they are not invested in small businesses here in Arizona. And they, they got it and they moved some of that money. 
Um, we also convinced the city of Tucson to move about $30 million. So, um, and then I think we've tracked almost a hundred businesses that have moved their, their money, um, and then countless individuals. So we've been very, uh, excited about the, the impact that we're having. Have local banks and credit unions talked to you about this? I mean, are they, you know, has this come up on their radar? Are they feeling this shift? There's only 13 community banks in Arizona and we have all three, uh, 13 of them engaged. We have a, a seed dating for a new bank event every February where it's we play it off uh, Valentine's Day and um, they all come out to that. And it's a place where you can actually come out, meet bankers, uh, learn what their areas of expertise are and, and pick one that works for you to move your money. Um, and they, you know, we have uh, at least two of them represented on our board of directors. And so, yes, they've been very engaged and very receptive. And I think, frankly, shocked at the impact that we're having. That's really great to hear. It's it's striking because Arizona, you know, I mean, that's a, a much lower level of local banks. You, you have a much smaller share of your deposits in local banks than is average. And I think another way in which Arizona is perhaps behind other states is in terms of land use policy. Um, you know, one of the things that we've found, and I, and I know that you found, is that land use is really critical to the health of local businesses, like how your planning and zoning works, what kind of built environment you're creating, um, has everything to do with whether you're creating opportunity for local entrepreneurs or room for chains to take over everything. And I guess, you know, just having visited Phoenix uh, and, and other parts of Arizona, it seems like a place where there's been you know, not a lot of attention to uh, having good zoning for a long time. And I think you sort of alluded to this uh, in the beginning when you were talking about this is a, a state that really has grown up around the car um, and, and not around having, you know, walkable uh, places. So tell me a little bit about, um, you know, working on the issue of land use and, you know, whether you're seeing any uh, shifts in movement in, in Arizona. We worked uh, successfully at the city level to get them to rethink the value of older building stock. And we got them to adopt the international existing building code, which enables um, inspectors in the field to be a little bit more tolerant and lenient toward getting an older building occupied. Um, the shifts that we made with the adaptive reuse program here in Phoenix um, has led to what is really today the most progressive adaptive reuse program in the country, where it spans city, all 500 square miles of the city of Phoenix, any building up to 100,000 square feet. So that's going to be a big box size building um, and anything that was built before 1990. And so um, it is an extensive program. Anybody can apply to go through it. And it's, it's a slightly different process that allows more tolerance um, for older components to a building that um, that may be, you know, they may be safe for humans. I mean, we're, ta we're not talking about, you know, endangering life safety, but um, things that, you know, in regular building code may be more rigidly interpreted and therefore more cumbersome to get a certificate of occupancy. So it's it's been um, a wild ride and it's been hugely successful. And I would credit those shifts in policy to why we now have, you know, 100, 125 
new small businesses have opened in our in our city center that were formerly in a blighted or abandoned buildings. So rather than tear those buildings down and build large new developments, we've been able to make a case that protecting the older building stock is a better economic development strategy. I do want to just shout out uh, Preservation Green Lab did a fantastic study that can be useful for your listeners called Older, Smaller, Better. And if you just Google Older, Smaller, Better, you can read the report and it it measures a wide variety of jobs per block uh, are higher in places that protected their older building stock, small businesses, small businesses owned by people of color. There's a bunch of measurables there that make an economic case for protecting older building stock and zoning that doesn't allow enormous footprints uh, to come in, you know, abandoning alleys and, you know, dominating entire blocks because that's not how to create the most jobs. That's great. Yeah, we um, we cited that research by Preservation Green Lab ourselves, and it's a really interesting study. It looks at several different cities um, and to, to look at the data on why diverse, historic, mixed kinds of districts are actually much better for a lot of different indicators of economic and, and social health. Um, we'll make sure to include a link to that study on the show page for this episode, and we'll also link to some materials about uh, Phoenix's adaptive reuse uh, program, which uh, has been just hugely successful. I mean, that's just terrific to hear that 125 businesses have been able to start up in buildings that were previously derelict because the city has, um, you know, stepped in and made that easier to do. I mean, that's it seems like a very, you know, it's kind of a low hanging fruit, and yet the the results of it have been really terrific. Yeah, and you know, the other piece that I want to mention, Stacey, is that there is a storefront improvement program where the city grants one large award to an architectural firm that then is tasked with giving away services at five to $10,000 increments to help small businesses, again, occupy those older buildings that may need um, a facade overhaul, if you will. So we, um, we actually, where our office is, we participated in that program and got approximately $7,000 worth of architectural services to, to get, um, you know, through the process to get our certificate of occupancy. So that's a wonderful program as well. That's great. You're listening to Kimber Lanning, Executive Director of Local First Arizona. I'm Stacey Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We'll be right back after a short break. Hey, everyone. As you know, we don't have ads on this show, but we do depend on you for financial support. We hope as the year winds up, you'll consider making a donation to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We're a national nonprofit organization, and our research, our advocacy, our work with communities really depends on support from people like you. So please go to ILSR.org donate. That's ILSR.org donate. Thanks. So we've been talking some about policy areas that are really about leveling the playing field, like making sure that local businesses have access to capital the same way that big businesses do, making sure that land use policies are actually creating the kind of built environment that works for local entrepreneurs. Um, I 
I want to turn a little bit to this question of like, okay, in addition to leveling the playing field, how do cities go further? How do they actually use their policy tools to grow local businesses to really actively, um, you know, promote and develop a different kind of economy? Um, so one of the places I want to talk about is procurement. Um, and, you know, it was really interesting, uh, as some of our listeners know, back in July, we released a report about this national contract that Amazon has secured to supply cities and school districts across the country with, you know, things like office supplies and classroom supplies. Um, Our report details a lot of the problems in that contract, um, but we learned that about 1,500 local governments have have already signed on to that deal um, and are, you know, shifting their purchasing increasingly to Amazon. What was interesting is that we pulled data on a bunch of different cities as we were doing that report, looking at, you know, how much are different cities spending with Amazon, and we found that Phoenix basically spends no money with Amazon, uh, and and that really stood out in the list of cities. So how is it that, you know, how is it that Phoenix has managed to avoid uh, uh, purchasing on Amazon? And tell us a little bit about how the city approaches its procurement. Yeah, so there was a lot of work that went into that, um, working in partnership with um, city staff. And also, I want to give a shout out to uh, former Phoenix Mayor Greg Stanton, who really saw the vision of taking city dollars, investing them in Arizona companies as a strategy to grow the economy. So we worked in partnership with city staff to come up with a program that we still use to, we still do today, which is to help them grow the number of Arizona companies they have in their database. And they also um, empower city staff to anything under a contract worth less than $100,000, they have the ability to only use the Arizona-based database. So they're not technically preferencing the Arizona companies, they're just using a process where only the Arizona businesses get to bid on those particular contracts. And the only way it will go to a national full bid is if they don't get at least three competitive bids on any particular item they're sourcing. I think having those relationships with city staff has been uh, one key thing that has helped us stay on track, but also reminding the elected officials who come and go. You know, city staff might be there 30 years, whereas the elected official is going to come and go every eight years or four years, depending. And so it's important to engage them both. And it's important to give credit to city staff when they make smart decisions like this. You know, I was mentioning to you earlier, we sent thank you cards to all of the decision makers um, after your study came out because they really made us shine. They made us, you know, like the, the smart city that we are, which is that, no, we aren't going to uh, put our money into a company that extracts wealth from our community. We are going to invest in the companies that are here investing in our future together with a shared vision. And, um, and so we're very proud of that. And I think that the procurement process in its first year was significantly smaller than it is today. I think in year one, we did an additional $22 million worth of business locally. Uh, I don't have the latest statistics, but it's significantly higher than that. And, 
you know, we, we host doing business with the city study sessions uh, two times a year, and we had 170 businesses come out to the last one. They can ask questions. We had about six or eight city staff there to answer questions and to walk people through the process of getting registered and um, helping them understand how to watch for and reply for on bits. So it's been a it's been a great experience, and we we think that we're very proud of the city and the decisions that they're making. That's terrific. It seems like the kind of thing that more cities across the country should be doing. I mean, instead of just handing over everything to Amazon um, or, you know, other large out-of-state companies, you know, why not use procurement as a tool to actually grow the kind of businesses that you want to have in the community? Um, Part of Local First Arizona's mission is around encouraging diversity and inclusion. And I'm curious how you bring that to your work. We live in a very diverse state, and um, I think that in this work, um, I personally went through somewhat of an awakening and realizing that we thought we had been inclusive, but we weren't really being that inclusive. And ultimately, I think the buy local campaigns, although very well intentioned, they really started in a place where only middle and upper class white folks were participating or even had the opportunity to participate. Many of our underserved areas had been overrun with cheap fast food places, big chains, and there weren't enough local businesses to support even if they wanted to. And so as part of that, we created a business accelerator program called Fuerza Local, and that's uh, F-U-E-R-Z-A, Fuerza Local. And that is a Spanish business accelerator program that it's uh, it's uh, six months to get through the program. They have to come to class uh, one night a week. And they learn not only about uh, how to run stronger, more efficient businesses, um, and they're all small business owners already when they start the program, but in addition to getting the business curriculum they need to build better businesses, they also have a financial literacy component that helps them gain access to fair market capital. So like many states, we have a crisis of having a huge number of predatory lenders here like check cashing places and title loan places that are feasting um, and victimizing our Latino population through Spanish language advertising and promotion. So the average interest rate our small businesses that come through this program are paying at the start of the program is 48%. Oh my gosh, wow. And a lot of people will say, oh, well, they're at the check cashing place because they ruined their credit. But what if I told you that, no, they didn't ruin their credit. Nobody just told them that there was a better way, that there was another way they could get a loan through a credit union. So our program takes, a, it's called a money pool, or in, uh, in certain uh, parts of the world, it might be called a tanda or a kundina. It is a model that families have used for centuries to save money together uh, without paying interest. So we have digitized that with uh, in partnership with a local company called eMoney Pool, and we put our students in pods of 12 people. They each make payments into the money pool each month with a goal of saving $1,000 over six months. So they make those payments together and all of them get their money back out of it. At the end of the six months, they've all saved $1,000. 
we, through our foundation, we match them $1,000. So now they have $2,000 and an updated business plan. Many of them have a business plan for the first time of how they're going to invest that money. But what's most important about this is we take their payments and report them to the credit bureau, Experion. So when they graduate, they have a credit history and we have relationships with two credit unions that will accept that certificate of completion and six months of credit history in lieu of any other background at all. That's all they need to access a $2,500 line of credit to get them started. Um, so we, we really believe strongly in this program. We've had over 400 graduates who have gone on to create over 500 jobs in the community. And we just have some amazing success stories where people just needed a fair deal and opportunity to learn so that they can be more competitive in their business. So it's a wonderful program and it's, um, it's really changing the face of some of our um, more diverse communities of color here in this, uh, in this area. Tell us about one of the entrepreneurs that went through that program and, and opened a business. Yeah, so uh, one that jumps into my mind, uh, we have a woman that just was a fantastic baker. She creates these amazing wedding cakes, uh, but she didn't know how to run a business. You know, she had her company. She had no website, no online presence at all. Um, she would quote people on the phone. It was all word of mouth. And she'd quote people on the phone, maybe say $500 for this wedding cake. And she'd go to deliver it. Uh, and uh, the, the family would say, well, sorry, we only have 275. And she would just feel sad and go back home. And her husband kept saying, this is never going to work. She was paying 46% interest on the money she had borrowed, working out of her home kitchen. She had no business license, no health permit. Um, and she had been sold three kinds of insurance that she didn't need. Wow. She was a star student, came through, uh, took advantage of every mentorship we offered her, front row, every class, did all of her homework with gusto. Um, and now she has, uh, she graduated from our program three years ago. Uh, to give you a recap, she's now with a credit union paying 6% interest. We got her out of her bad loan. She has the right kind of insurance. She has her business permit, her health permit. We helped her get out of her home kitchen and into a commercial kitchen. And she just landed a, a contract with the largest local grocery chain in this area and she has six full-time employees so in a three-year period she went from having one failing home-based business to having six full-time employees and it's quite remarkable when you see somebody that they just needed to be able to learn in their primary language she speaks English but she learns better in Spanish and to be given an opportunity to access capital at a fair market rate and it just transformed her entire life that's great. That's great. Well, I want to turn now to your own business. Um, you are a record store owner. You own Stinkweeds, which is a terrific store. I've, I've really enjoyed visiting it. Um, I think a lot of people think that record stores are from a bygone era, but Stinkweeds seems to be going strong. Uh, what's the secret? I've had the store since 1987. We just um, passed our 31st anniversary. Um, and 2016-17 were the strongest years we have ever had in wow. the history of the store. So vinyl is very real. It is, it is wonderful to see three generations of people come into the store enjoying buying vinyl records. We sell tons of turntables. And I think, I think the reason we're successful is twofold. Um, one is just flat out, we've got the best customer service and the best selection. I mean, it's just a, it's a great store and we pay 
um, for used records better than many of our competitors do. Uh, we're, we're more of a fair uh, wheeler dealer of new and used records. But also, Stacy, um, the honest to God truth is that I bought my building, you know, 15 years ago, and that has enabled me to keep my costs down. And I've been able to fight the gentrification that's occurred around me by simply owning my own property. And so I want to help other small businesses figure out how they can buy their buildings as well. So while the rents of all my neighbors have gone up two and three times, I'm still there uh, with my mortgage and my tiny little building. I mean, my building is a thousand square feet and it's sort of like the little engine that could, but that's that's a very real reason for why we've been able to stay this long. You know, we're trying to figure out how to get more small independent businesses to be able to buy their buildings. That's so important. Um, We've just been hearing from people across the country about that problem. And it's, it's really critical. It'd be great to see more places have programs to help support that. And again, another link with local banking and why it really matters to have capital available. As we're wrapping up today, I think the, the, one of the last things I want to ask you about is, you know, you went from being an entrepreneur to being a community organizer and a, a policy advocate. And I'm, and you've grown Local First Arizona into this large, vibrant organization with a lot that's going on, and you've changed a lot of policies in, in the state and within Phoenix and other communities. And I'm curious what kinds of advice you would have for people who want to do this in their state. You know, what is it that you've learned along the way that you wish you knew when you started? I think one of the most important things that we are able to do is to think about big systems and to be able to whittle it down into stories about people. So, you know, if I want people to move their money, I don't just talk about the big financial systems and the policies behind them. I think in order to motivate and inspire people, we have to talk about the guy who applied at 14 different big banks and got turned down, and yet now he's there shaking the hands of the community bank president who shares a vision with him about what that neighborhood could look like. To, to, to tell other people how we do this work, it's really that. People, you lose them if you're going to constantly talk about big, huge systems change things because it seems overwhelming. What we need to do is show them individual people who are succeeding how they're succeeding and then tie it back to an action that we're asking them to do. The reason this guy could meet with this bank president is because um, the, the, the community bank is only chartered locally. So we need to get more money to that guy so he can lend to more people just like Jim, you know, or whatever. That, that is really the secret sauce is giving it to people in a way that they can relate to it. Mm-hmm. That's great. To wrap things up today, we often ask our guests to make a reading recommendation, and it can be anything. Yes. Yeah, so I am super inspired by Anand Giridas. Um, I'm not totally positive on the pronunciation of his name, but I believe it's Anand Giridas. And the book is called Winners Take All. And I'm super inspired that he is really taking to task a lot of these big corporations that are hiding 
behind the banner of conscious capitalism and they're pretending to do good without actually changing any systems. And let me tell you, um, the only way to change these things is to dismantle them. And if anybody is pretending to do good in the community while they're doing harm in the community at the same time, we need to hold them accountable for that. And we can't just rush to support the companies that offer free yoga on Tuesdays for all their employees while their money is invested in coal and oil and other extractive economies somewhere else. So he's really encouraging big picture thinking and accountability. And I just love the book. Highly recommend it. And that's winners take all, right? That's right. Well, excellent. Thank you, Kimber. It's been so great to have you on the show. Really appreciate the time. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thanks for all the good work you do. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters, connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and if you like this podcast, please consider sharing it with your friends or leave us a rating. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez, Zach Fried, and Hippa Murray. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Stacey Mitchell. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.